first episode of researching happy welcome this show is all about the stories behind the studies of well-being research and mental health research um and what a way to kick off the show um it was an honor to have Corey keys uh we talked all about his research which has had you know a huge impact on me in my life but also um i think can make a big difference in the world um if people would just listen so you know like subscribe share get this story out there i think Corey's work is amazing um he also shared some of the, uh, what do we call it, unconventional um, origin stories of positive psychology. And I think, like, you know, it's kind of the theme of the show. This is just amazing stuff that people haven't really heard about. So um, thank you. I hope you, hope you enjoy it. Um, please let me know what you think. So it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Corey Keyes. Before I let Corey introduce himself, let me give a little bit of context. So I personally believe that Corey is the scientist or amongst the scientists who have given more to positive psychology than almost any other. He has multiple seminal papers, more than uh, I think 10 papers with more than a thousand citations, which for those who aren't familiar, it's a pretty big deal. <laughs> He's contributed on social well-being, on psychological well-being with Carol Riff. He's developed one of the most commonly used measures of mental well-being, which um, importantly predicts things as important as longevity and future mental illness and and from my perspective i guess most importantly he's investigated and really developed um, an understanding on the relationship between mental well-being and mental illness uh, now ironically i think Corey doesn't associate with positive psychology and i think that's something we can get into a little bit now but uh welcome Corey. well it's great to be here matthew and to launch your podcast I really appreciate it. So just quickly, I, I guess, uh, what are you working on? Let's just start there. What's on your mind? Well, um, I've had a bit of a career change. I um, am now Professor Emeritus of Sociology at Emory University. And for those of you who are probably wondering, um, seems like he has a few more years left ahead of him, and that's true. I retired early. Uh, I just turned 60 years old, which isn't old anymore, at least by some standards. And um, I'm launching a career um, in writing books, and I'm just finishing my first book for a, a publishing house called Crown Publishers, which is part of Penguin Random House. And the book will be about uh, um, all of my research, but really the uh, entry point will be, of all things, uh, around languishing. And I was a bit surprised by that, Matthew, because you, as you know, I've spent more of my life talking about flourishing. <laughs> um, the other side, or the other end of the mental health continuum, and because not that many people really wanted to talk about languishing and until, of all things, the pandemic hit. Yeah. And um, I'm not surprised now that I've tried to understand why it took the pandemic to launch this topic of languishing. But boy, did it ever go global and viral in 2021 after Adam Grant wrote his 
op-ed piece about his own personal struggles with languishing. Um, yeah, so maybe give a little bit more detail about that. So that was in the New York Times by Adam Grant. Yes, um, and just a little bit of backstory. I, I, I remember being invited um, by colleagues at the Positive Business uh, Program at the University of Michigan. Um, and I, I went there to give some talks. And Adam Grant, I think, was a postdoc. I think he was, but he was a graduate student at the time. And our, that was the first time our paths had crossed. And so I, I talked about my research and its role in, 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 in business and how mental illness needs to be prevented and dealt with in the business arena. Um, of course, Adam has gone on to have a, a really wonderful career at Wharton at the University of Penn and is well known because he's become an author of several very important books. But during the pandemic, he, uh, like millions of people around the world, were struggling with not just, not mental illness. And I, I, I know Adam is he's well versed in this area. He he would know the difference between depression and languishing, and he was struggling with it personally for the first time. I think in a way that um, had maybe surprised him, and he wrote this opinion piece describing his own experience with languishing and and used my description of languishing as the middle child that's in between depression and flourishing. And fast forward to the end of 21, 2021, the New York Times compiles uh, a list of articles that were the most read articles. And that was the number one, the most read article of the New York Times in the year 2021. And so it hit a nerve uh, at that time. And I was just beginning to to write my book. And um, so of all things, I never would have anticipated it took a global epidemic and pandemic in particular to provide the opening for this discussion and an introduction of my work, but of all things, languishing. Mm. Amazing. So, yeah, I've heard. Oh, sorry, well, I was going to say I've heard um, Professor Lindsay Odes at Uni of Melbourne say that this, you know, that the pandemic was the well-being experiment, the well-being experiment that nobody wanted and nobody asked for, where we, you know. You take away the things that make us well, um, and then people really started to understand about this idea of well-being and what it means to languish. Yes, 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 yes. And, and I remember writing um, one section one day. Uh, there are many times when I've been writing this book that uh, tears have come to my eyes as I'm writing. It's almost it's almost been therapeutic. And I remember writing a lot about how to to approach and think about languishing and. I've described it as a form of invisibility, of when you begin to feel that you are starting to live like you're almost a ghost, half alive, somewhat visible, but becoming invisible. Mm -hmm. And invisibility is an experience that a lot of marginalized people and discriminated people know very well. But I think what... what um, I remember writing about what's the pandemic. How would you say? 
It was an equal opportunist when it came to creating an invisibility because for the mm-hmm. first time, even people with who had power and money and privilege had things taken from them against their will and without their permission. Mm-hmm. And that's what languishing, how it starts. Things that you that you that make you a full human being are taken from you without your permission. And for the first time, I think we have an opportunity to talk about how, from a, a starting point, uh, people who walk around taking that for granted, that nobody comes around and takes things of value, their meaning in life, their purpose in life, their sense of belonging, just they, they take that for granted, like it's there and nobody will ever take it from them without their permission. Well, welcome to the world of a lot of people. The pandemic did that. So I hope we come out of the pandemic with a little more empathy for how structures of inequality and all the isms erode well-being. Because that's really, Matthew, why I started studying as a sociologist, of all things, well-being. Because to me, uh, the way in which inequality and isms begin their oppressive nature is to take things from you that means something to you and to do it without your permission. Mm. Interesting. Interesting. I haven't heard you come from that, from that length, from that, uh, that lens, I guess, when it comes to language, I think, I think I've probably just thought of it as an outcome, not necessarily about the drivers that produce it. Yeah. I had to think a lot about that because in order to make a book that will resonate with the, non-academic world you 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 need to really think about your research in a way that relates to them in the way they might experience this mm-hmm. yeah we talk yeah. about variables and questionnaires and questions on our measurement tools as if um that um is the way people experience it well even the even though these questionnaires might be valid and reliable I don't think they get at how how things like languishing and flourishing are experienced by people. Yeah. And so I had to dig deep into my own experience of languishing because that's really why I started studying what I was studying. I mean, I knew emptiness and invisibility very well from a very young age. Mm-hmm. And so from there, I started to write this book and begin to tell the stories behind all the measurement tools that we've developed to measure well-being. Great. And so taking, I guess, a step back. So um, I, I think one of your sort of more seminal contributions to the literature was really around this mental health continuum. Um, it's obviously the name of uh, some of your bigger papers, but the, the name of your measurement tool as well. But that idea, I guess, was was new, I guess, it wasn't it, that that there is this continuum that we range from, from a high level of well-being to a low level of well-being, just to give a little bit of background for, for the uh, listeners who haven't heard of these terms. So flourishing being a high level of well-being, languishing being a low level. Yes. Um, I, yeah, and I, I, my publisher, and I've, I've just gone through um, preparing for the book launch, and it starts, for those of you who haven't done a book, <laughs> It's quite startling. Uh, it starts a year in advance. And so I had to, about a week ago, respond to what they call an author questionnaire. And they wanted, um, 
a description of the backstory behind my book and my research. Mm -hmm. What prompted it? Yeah. And so I was, of, of all these things, I was talking about my own experience with invisibility, as I just alluded to. But then um, I've always been passionate about two things. Um, lifting up people and their stories, uh, especially those, those of us who live with trauma, who kind of sit in the back background, right? And, be, mm -hmm. and our, part of our invisibility is chosen because the, the, the more we sit in the background, the safer we feel. But I was kind of tired of that. And I, I wanted to be seen and, and, and to tell my story and to live to tell it. And the other thing, uh, I wanted to make the invisible see, appear and become more visible. That is the stories of people who live, who live with trauma. The second was mental health became a very important topic to me. And when I said mental health, to me, I, the things that sustained me was the sense that there was something more to life than merely mm -hmm. existing, right? Merely existing. And so as I began my journey in this field, I was stunned. I was just stunned to think that for decades, we've treated mental health as an invisible category, as an empty category. Mental health was the absence of mental illness. Mm -hmm. And I thought, that cannot be true. That cannot be true at all. And so I set out to make that empty, invisible category more visible. Mm -hmm. And the mental health continuum was the result of my a long period of digging into the happiness, well-being literature. Because that's where I went by, by instinct. Mm -hmm. to begin to explore what would the presence of good mental health look like? Where would you go to look for it in the first place? And so that's where I went. And by the, by the time I was done with my graduate studies, I had come upon a list of signs and symptoms of well-being that I was confident represented a very good beginning at least to the measurement so what, of mental health. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess, so now the way that we, that we talk about your work, I guess, and, and this kind of world, when we talk about invisibility, I guess for us, a really a concrete example is that someone who might be languishing. So I guess in my language, they would be someone who's not getting the most out of life. They're kind of probably on the couch a little bit too often, a little bit less antisocial than they might like to be. Mm. Um, just kind of in the dumps a little, you know, like I think Adam Grant called it the, the feeling of blah, which we can, I think, mm -hmm. all to relate to since particularly those who went through extended lockdowns and those sorts of things. We kind of talk about that idea that that, that languishing person might present themselves to a, to a GP or to a psychologist um, where they would be screened for their symptoms of a mental illness of which they would not cross the threshold to be deemed, you know, mentally ill or needing further services. And that's kind of the way that we talk about, or at least it's an example of how we they talk about this idea of invisibility, sort of like flying under the radar of our services, of our health yeah. services. But of course, I think you're talking about in, in a broader context than that, aren't you? Like in a social, 
sort of day to daily life? I'm I'm talking about uh, the sense of invisibility is to feel um, that emptiness. Mm-hmm. Emptiness. Right? So the, the personal experience of languishing is often described. Uh, and, and, and when Adam talked about blah, you don't you don't feel anything really good. You don't feel anything really bad. You just kind of like. Mm-hmm. And he called it sometimes he used I think he used the word meh. I've never used that myself, but apparently that resonated. I was like, eh. It's like, I don't feel real much of anything. And that's, right? I mean, we're creatures like every other sentient creature on this planet has the capacity to experience emotions. And to feel an emotion, even if it's bad, is to have a sense that you're still alive. Mm-hmm. But when you're languishing, feeling nothing good, nothing bad, you're beginning to feel like you're receding into the background, like you're half alive. And so the experience that people use around feeling nothing and feeling empty is almost like the description of what it must be like to be a, a ghost. And mm-hmm. So that's what I'm talking about when I talk about when I'm using invisibility there. But I think what you bring up, too, is this sense that... Um, what it must be like to, to go into our healthcare system seeking help for a very, very real problem. Yeah. I mean, the science is very clear that people who are languishing are are having some are at risk for some very serious problems. We can talk about that. But when they go there, chances are they they will have very few, if any, symptoms of mental illness. Some of them might. Right, might show up on on a, a psychiatrist's radar, but the, many of them won't. And so, it, I talk about this one experience in my book about as a graduate student, I didn't realize I had been working so long and alone on my doctoral dissertation, which is a very lonely period, and I did not feel well, and I didn't even realize myself that I was languishing. And I went to the doctor. And, because I didn't feel good. Really? Something felt really, really wrong. And then there was no diagnosis. And so here's what the doctor essentially said. There's nothing wrong with you. Um, and he, he knew I was married. And so he said, why don't you go home, fix yourself a cup of coffee or tea and have a conversation and you know a nice talk with your wife. Maybe that'll help. And I remember leaving like, you don't really... Did you did you hear me tell you how what it felt like to, to be me right now? I was like, I almost felt like telling them to, to F off, to tell you the truth, because I felt unseen, like he didn't Absolutely. hear me. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, I mean, what years were these? These must be early 90s. This was uh, 1994. 94. OK, so a 94. Where do you go? The doctor... You know, the doctor has just kind of sent you home for a cup of coffee. Yeah. Uh, and now what, you know? And I guess in, in many ways, that's the emergence then of this work and this body of work is that there are interventions and there are there are ways forward for improving well-being and for addressing languishing. And I think that's where the book probably goes. It goes, yes. We spend the sec- I spend the second half um, talking about the, what I believe are the five... best 
practices that you can do every day. And I'm going to keep those to myself, Matthew. So yeah, no, that's fine. Book. No, no, I want them to. <laughs> but um, here, here's one thing. Because you, 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 you've done this work on interventions yourself. And here's the disconnect that I see in our field right now, Matthew. Um, we talk about interventions um, as if the, these are things that people can readily take uh go off and find um, in their community. Mm-hmm. Much like if they needed a healthcare visit, they could go get some help. And and you all in your, in your Being Well uh, program, I, I, I know you have some online programs, but a lot of these are just interventions that people do as a matter of research. So my point in bringing up, we have all these things that we do scientifically that don't get translated into... Uh, into practices that exist somewhere in communities where people can go when they don't feel well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I've I've been a big proponent of not putting these practices and programs necessarily in existing healthcare systems that somehow we need to have a system that's separate from them. And for the reasons being that the healthcare system is really a big sick care industry and you, you get sucked up into their politics and programs and the self sense of self-importance that they're, what they're doing is far more important. I've seen it again and again. So it's as if what I need we need the world to imagine what would a a well care system mm-hmm. look like, and is there a community in a nation ready to build those well care systems and clinics in every community and train professionals to staff them, and so that people can go to places like they can go to see their doctor. Go to see their well care professional. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, like I mean, as as uh, often is the case, I completely agree with you, Corey. And and you know, you mentioned some of the work that we do, and I think the programs that we deliver. Yes, we are trying to, I guess, do research studies on the back of them, but their primary focus is about that translation into the community. So, okay. most of mm-hmm. the programs that we deliver are either community based or you know, in a place like a workplace. Where I think we we have really tried to bring that focus of, um, you know, like for example, with the you mentioned the Be Well Plan, that's where we've synthesized thirty different activities from the academic literature that you could be practicing. But we kind of talk about it like walking into the gym. You know, you, you go to the gym. There are lots of exercises that you could do. You don't do them mm-hmm. all. You do the ones that are matched to who you are, what you're interested in, and what your goals are. So we're really trying to give the autonomy back to that individual to come up with some daily practices um, that are evidence-based and that can assist, you know, with that sort of, um, with their well-being. And I think the addressing languishing is, is part of it. Um, but also with a focus on, you know, the, whether people are experiencing, you know, levels of stress or anxiety or, you yeah. know, sort of low levels of depression as well. So that's kind of where we, we're coming from. And I completely agree, but I wanted to share a, a bit of an anecdote. So, one of my friends um, worked in, uh, we have like lots of different, it was pretty multicultural society in Australia, I think, as you know. And 
one of my friends works in Italian aged care. And he said, why don't we try and translate some of your program content into Italian and we'll deliver it, um, you know, with, with, our, with, our, with our people. And so we did that. We translated it. Um, and we said, let's just bring in a bit of a focus group of a couple of sort of keen individuals just to see whether the translation worked and whether the concepts resonate. And what was pretty amazing, I even invited my own grandmother actually, which was, which was pretty fun. <laughs> um, what was really amazing was basically that we couldn't teach them anything. And, and why we couldn't teach them was that they already knew. And so when we were talking about things, you know, the sort of classic things like gratitude, like the, your ability to adapt, we're talking about, um, you know, the importance of family, the importance of, of, of work mm. and perseverance and, mm. and purpose in life. They had this stuff already. They obviously didn't call it what we called it. Um, and, and I think they really, they really learned that from their culture. And so that was a huge, I guess, a wake-up call. I, probably it's one of those things that you already knew it, but you were acting as if it wasn't true. This idea that for this group of people, and it's not just obviously Italian migrants, but for this group of people, they had learned this and adopted it from their culture. And I wonder whether mm. you consider that that's a bit of a missing thing at the moment in the sort of in the West. Mm, yes. Um, interesting that you brought that up because I do think we've, we've lost a bit of our way and I, I I'm most cautious of kind of re reminiscing about the past, <laughs> but I, I, I've noticed this in my, in my, that, in, in our recommendations and you just spoke about things that were, were that were almost out of necessity the things that older generations the people who are are still alive today but were raised in a very different time that was very important to the way in which you were raised because it was essential to getting through mm -hmm. uh, life mm -hmm. because you had no one else there um, like people do today, all these well-being initiatives and positive psychology, this and life coach, this and right and app, this app, X, Y and Z apps for X, Y and Z programs. I mean, they, they just didn't exist. And so it's it's a great one. I think people care just as much about their well-being 50 years or 100 years ago as we do today. And I think mm -hmm. that the misnomer is somehow somehow we're, we're more concerned and we can afford to focus on happiness. Well, you know what? Just go back to an ancient philosopher, philosopher named uh, um, Aristotle or Epicurus. I mean, since we've been able to r th think about and, and write down our history and our, our scholarship, people have been trying to figure out how to create lives that had some some modicum of happiness and meaning in it mm -hmm. and that the culture that you're talking about um had to create that for itself it couldn't afford it uh, literally and figuratively to wait around for somebody to tell them how to do it and now we have to coach people about this and teach them about mm -hmm. gratitude i mean we have to because we're walking around in the modern world thinking that gratitude stuff oh I don't need that. And really, I don't need to teach my kids that unless, well, 
maybe if it'll make them better in their college applications, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> can I put this on my kids at college applications so they can get into Yale or, or uni, right? No, it's so damn instrumental today. We don't care about exactly. those things. And now everything old in, 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 in the work we're doing is new again. Like what yeah. I I like to say is I've made Aristotle and Epicurus really important public health figures in the modern world. That's not what they set out to be. But the fact of the matter is their work was so important that we're now realizing that anything less than flourishing, uh, uh, right, with too many people languishing in your society, you're going to have all kinds of serious problems. And so that culture that you're talking about says, we know this. We need to bottle that up, preserve it, and, and talk about how we can maintain some of these things in a modern world that seems to think exactly. progress is everything that I, is in front of me, nothing that's behind me historically. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I don't. I just don't hear that anymore. I mean, I believe that completely, but I just don't hear it anymore in the world. And I think sort of like, what do they call like sort of hyper, uh, hyper progress, you know, we're moving further and further into the future, um, faster and faster, quicker than we can sort of evolutionarily adapt, I guess, is one way of putting it. I think that's yeah. how um, some people would put it. But mm. I mean, there's lots of conversation. There's lots of ways this can go. I, I want to take a couple of steps back and you know, you're talking about Epicurus and Aristotle. You mentioned when you were sort of in your graduate studies that you were trying to understand, you know, what makes for a full human being. I I just wonder, you know, reading through your work, uh, I, I pulled out your book on um, flourishing the other day. I think that was published in 2001. Hmm. I was reading through and you're quoting, you know, Pope Gregory the Great, these Greek <laughs> philosophers. You're quoting Tolstoy, Oprah. Hmm. I'm I'm just wondering, sort of, what makes you such a generalist? Where, how do you know this stuff? Well, or are I, you a generalist? So I should start. I, I am. I just well, let me sit back. I just think I was given the greatest job on earth, the opportunity to learn mm. as a lifelong. Um, endeavor and to teach i take those things so seriously and when i write i i find myself very frustrated with psychologists and sociologists who don't realize that their work goes way beyond their own discipline yes i think there is no excuse in at at all and we shouldn't build up scholars who are so insular good in just one thing. Now, I, I, having said that, that sounds very critical. I was just thinking of the difference of two people that mattered a lot to me and to the emergence of, and of positive psychology, Ed Diener and Carol Riff. Yep. I know their work very well. And, I, and I'll come back to your question about the generalist. Um, I, of course, work very closely with Carol, and, and I knew her really well. And she, like me, was just, she knew that the field that she was in, the well-being field, didn't start because of modern science. 
So she read people like Bertrand Russell and Aristotle. And lo and behold, in 1989, she wrote an article that took on people like Ed Diener and others who said, well, the good life is just about, you know, life satisfaction and happiness. Well, I, I think, you know, I don't think that was personal with her. It was simply to say, come on, people, don't you realize, you psychologists, that there's a big world out there that it predates you and predates science. And then I read all of Ed Diener's work, and he's a fan, he was a fantastic psychological scholar, but I never once read anything in his, his research that showed he, he read anything beyond psychology. And I just thought, well, they both contributed a lot to the world. We need specialists and we need generalists. Absolutely, and it's and the combination I, that makes it It's the combination, but I have a feeling that it's the generalists who catch a lot of flack because they come into a field and I think when they produce work, the people who have been doing the work in the field think, take it very personally, like how dare you argue that, you know, my work isn't like the, the end I'm all sorry, and be all. breaking up a little bit there, Corey, on my end. Yeah, well, anyway, I was just thinking, I think the generalists, catch some flack because from the specialists because there is this sense of that the specialists are, are purists in, in maintaining the purity of their, their discipline while the generalists are somehow you know making muddying up things mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. here's the thing I I wanted to have the most accurate historical understanding of whatever I was studying. And I tried my best. I'm sure I missed a few people. But whenever I wrote, I studied the literature and I did not ignore anybody and I cited them. I see a lot of very selective citation in, in, in the world right now people very selectively citing citing research happening even when they use the word flourishing yeah you'll see work people talking about flourishing as if nobody had written about it before them and i'm like how can you do that you claim to be a scientist who reads and and i'll, I'll tell you matthew when I was a graduate student, this was going to sound like I had to walk through a field of, of snow that was 20 inches deep. But we had to go to the library, go through card catalogs yeah. and go, right? We had to spend a lot of time doing research. You can sit in your laptop and get 20 articles within 15 minutes. There's no excuse. And so my point is this. People are getting sloppier the easier it gets to do research. Yeah. Yeah. They're getting narrower rather than broader when we can pay homage to the depth of our field. Psychology owes a lot to philosophy and any historian in psychology writes about the importance of all the philosophers. They're still relevant today. So it was just natural to me to go anywhere and everywhere to talk about how well-being was relevant. To me, the, the, the deeper it goes, the, the 
bigger the foundation on which you can rest your science. So if yeah, they're talking absolutely. about it in, in, in audience, in opera, and it hasn't disappeared, and they were talking about it in ancient Greece or in Turkey or in the Persian world it, uh, hundreds of years ago, isn't that pretty relevant? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, incredible. I incredible. And I wonder... Oh, I mean, I have a million questions, I think, at this point, but the, the what you just said now of the idea of it's getting sloppier as it gets easier, have, do you think that individual papers, um, so I guess we'll, let's take a step back and quickly just maybe explain for the audience that the idea being a citation is is almost a currency in in research world. So the idea being when I'm writing a paper and I'm borrowing an idea that I've read from somewhere else or 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 that I've seen somewhere or that supports some of my arguments, I should be citing that original source. Mostly, I guess, to give credit to the original person who came up with that idea. And so I think, Corey, I'll say it on your behalf that that idea of flourishing, I mean, that is a I think that's a term that you would argue you coined. It was the title of your book um, mm -hmm. that you co-edited with Jonathan Haidt. Haidt, um, yep. And, uh, and, and you, and, I guess this idea of flourishing now has got a, a world of its own. Now it's got a life of its own, um, yeah. possibly without recognizing where it originated from. And wh why I want to talk just quickly about the importance of your work in the context of languishing and flourishing is that I guess scientists and, and correct me if I'm wrong, Corey, but I, I think you can make the argument that scientists, you know everything we said about psychology and and philosophy sort of notwithstanding but psychologists and in, in a scientific way they really hold up their merit um or they can indicate their merit by how well their theories predict future outcomes right so mm -hmm. sort of going back to the basics right so hypothesis test predict outcomes your work, your measure of well-being, so which which includes your model of well-being, which I think is something maybe we haven't talked about a little bit, is that that you said as a graduate student, you you read around, you've pulled together years of work now at this stage to develop a model of well-being, meaning that this is my mm -hmm. idea of the things that are included to to live a good life, or or in your language, to to be a full human being. You then measured that. And particularly in one study where you measured people over 10 years, the same people in midlife across the US. Yeah. So this is a, a representative sample, meaning that it's your, the sample of people that you worked with or that you, you measured the well-being of looks like the average American, basically something like that. Um, and what you saw was it was incredible that, you know, the one that I really focus on is that those who were languishing, so they had that low level of well-being, mm -hmm. um, we're up to almost eight times more likely to be diagnosed with a mental illness 10 years down the track. 10 years I later, I know. And so, you know, talk about the predictive power of flourishing and languishing. Um, it's there for all to see. And it, it, wasn't just, it wasn't just for future mental illness, right? It was heart health. It was mortality. Um, any other comments on that and what it was like to sort of find those results? Well, it was very pleasing but i i was here's the way i approached this this project matthew I, you know you've all heard about the um t the story of the, the the hare and the turtle and they have this race but they're they're 
they're, they're, they're each racing a different race, but the hare thinks they're, I, the turtle isn't interested in the race the hare is racing. <laughs> but there were a lot of hares and there were a few of us who were turtles when, it, when, when this all started. And I was doing this long before positive, and so was Carol Riffin at Diener, long before positive. That's the thing people need to understand. Positive psychology exists because of a lot of people that was predated. It came, it, it was kind of a, a bit of a, you know, well, we can talk about that later. Yeah, but it, so we were doing this and, and I, I have lived experience. I'm very passionate about mental illness and putting it on, um, make, giving it a lot more, um, the world needs to take it very seriously. And so I, I wanted to contribute to make a contribution in my lifetime to doing something about the problem of mental illness. And, and the way I saw it as a sociological kind of public health person was to create an approach that I thought might help to prevent some of it from happening in the first place. Yes. And so I took the long view. I was not going to go write a book um, with five articles right on, underneath me. I wanted to make sure that I had something that was measuring something really important that had predictive power that didn't that went very deep in our genetics and our DNA and our biology. We can talk about that too. It's it's this this distinction between languishing and flourishing and the components of well-being are deeply intertwined in in very specific biological processes of our body. Mm-hmm. So here, here I was, I, I remember at the first meeting of the positive psychology down in Acomal, Mexico, I made a promise to myself. I said, I'm not going to go contribute anything to this movement unless it solves a very serious problem in the world and helps alleviate human suffering. Mm-hmm. And so I was not going to go on the bandwagon and say, write books to, to do more tours and make a ton of money because people were interested in happiness. No, I'm not trying to, to be a saint. I'm just sim- sim- simply saying, if I don't build up enough science that says we c- can predict um, that if you go in one direction, you can reduce the risk of mental illness among other problems and that this has mm-hmm. a, a basis in our biology, then, then this isn't worth writing about, right? Well, I'm here to tell you after um, 25 years, we've got the science now and it's very clear. Um, distinction between languishing and flourishing is hugely important. The world needs to understand that there's a public health problem that nobody's paying attention to and it's far bigger than mental illness. It's the huge amount of the world's population that's languishing and gets no attention, anything. And this is an opportunity that public health systems in every country is missing. And it's a need as well, because if you're languishing for too long, all kinds of bad things happen. If I just read a study that came out of Turkey, which showed that Teenagers who are languishing have the highest risk of non-suicidal self-harm, cutting themselves, banging their heads, pulling their hair out, 
I mean, really bad stuff. That this languishing is, is so unpleasant that they rather feel pain and cause themselves pain than to feel nothing. There's a variety of other problems. Delinquency, risk of mental illness, risk of suicidality. I could go on. It's just remarkable all the things that the absence of flourishing predicts. And it's genetic, it's deeply genetic, and it's tied into all sorts of biological processes. So the evidence is very clear. Now, people can create all kinds of measures and any, anything they want, but until they start showing me they got something that measures flourishing differently or better that has the amount of evidence that my measure has at the genetic, biological, and predictive level, you know, just as we like to say, you, you go big or you stay home. Stay home until you've got something to really talk about. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. No, that's incredible. Honestly, it is incredible. And I think for the person who didn't want to be invisible from the start, I mean, to have been the most read New York Times article, basically featuring your work and the idea of languishing in 20, was it 2020 or 2021? 2021 i mean you're yeah. talking about lockdowns covid politics trump vaccines mandates and languishing was the top like uh, incredible so and i'm just so pleased to see that and so this is a journey then i guess you sort of say you're you're a graduate student in 90 sort of around 94 where are we up to now so 30 years later, here we are. So the, the, tur the turtle is, uh, is nearly at the finish line. I, it's amazing that you brought that up, actually. I've just started, my son's almost about to turn three and we've just started talking about fairy tales and, and these sorts of things. And um, I just literally said the, the, the tortoise and the hare or the turtle and the hare the other, like last night. <laughs> That's great. It's a wonderful story, isn't it? It's, yeah, it's a wonderful a lot story. Of, um, a lot of wolf-based children's stories i realized last night as i was trying to remember them yeah um, but anyway um so so you you mentioned this trip to mexico and, I, and i'm kind of i kind of see myself as a bit of a student of the game in a way of this idea of just i, I want to know the history of how this stuff happened you know i'm in australia i'm mm. kind of 20 years in the past right because this is happening in the late 90s so i'm kind of trying to catch up but i'm also just not around anyone that knows these stories um how would you feel about going into the, the, those meetings in Mexico and just describing for people what that was like? Well, here's how it unfolded. <clears throat> I was a graduate student at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and I was working <clears throat> at the Institute on Aging with Carol Riff um, so, and dividing my time as a sociologist between, you know, I, and in fact, I, I would go to, down to work with Carol because very few sociologists were studying well-being. That's a whole separate issue. And so she was well-known for very good reasons, a very top scholar in this field, one of the, the uh, pioneers in charting the, the course for, you know, the, the hedonic versus the eudaimonic. And she gets a letter from Marty Seligman and the letter is asking her to nominate uh, the best student that she's, she knows of in the field of well-being and happiness. And 
unbeknownst to me, she and, and to recommend and write, you know, why this is a person you you would put forward as one of the your best. And she nominates me. And it turns out that this is how Mar Marty and Mike Chicksamia, but it was Marty at that time, was trying to get the core group of young positive psychologists formed. Mm -hmm. And we can talk about why they were even doing this in the first place. But this is how it all started. So they sent out these letters to people at Carol Riff's level, full professors, well-established, to nominate the best person that they've ever come across and trained. And then they got all these letters back and he he went through them and chose 18 of us. And I was one of them. And the only non-psychologist. This is the story of my life. I love interdisciplinary work. I, I you know, people call me a psychologist uh, when I'm in sociology and when I'm in psychology, they call me a sociologist, but I, they call me in, on the web a psychologist, sociologist. I'm like, <laughs> call me what you want. I'm just a scholar. But anyway, 18 of us were selected to form the core of positive psychology. Mm -hmm. Now, that's already interesting, isn't it? It's like, wow. Um, it invited to spend up, it was like five days in Acomal, Mexico. And it was just us. We'd leave our family behind. It was during winter break. So, it was, and it was beautiful. And each day we'd spend the better part of the day having these presentations, essentially talking about our work. And in the background were these young people that from Penn that had come with Marty writing down everything we were saying. Okay. Essentially, <laughs> we were doing brain dumps. I got, yeah, I, we did these brain dumps and they wrote it up because, you know, I remember at the end of the first meeting, I, we all like, well, what, what's behind this? What's going on here, Marty? And I remember asking him that question point blank. Um, essentially, I think the, the story that was told in American Psychologists about how it was formed is, is true. And then I think two very powerful business slash foundations got very interested in this field and wanted young scholars who were hungry and ready to publish their butts off and wanted to make a career out of this. And so after that first meeting, I think they wrote up everything that we had talked about and gave it to these places that were unbeknown. They weren't known to us. We had a hunch. Because in the second meeting, second or third, we, we, we met. I went to the first three. Then I stopped going. I, I just couldn't take it anymore. How it many just, were there? I think there were a few more in Akumal. But I went to the first three. And I think in the second or the third, the CEO of Gallup shows up along with the CEO of the American Psychological Association, Ray Fowler. I have pictures of Ray and Don Clifton and me and Marty and Mike Chicks at me high, along with the 18 of us. And, um, and, and then we heard um, there was going to be this big initiative in this Templeton scholarship, scholars program. So here are the two big business 
in, behind this. The Gallup was very interested in creating a well-being initiative. We all know it now, and they measure it worldwide, but they were just starting out. And so they needed this field and they needed us and they needed a whole bunch of people creating, helping to create this, the scholarship behind this so they could have a, a business model and go out there in the world because they make their money off account consulting. They do their polls and their polls are just great advertising for them. What they do is come in and consult. That's how they make their money. Billions of it, right? And the Templeton Foundation has oodles of money and they are interested in funding research that has serves their foundation's interests which is quasi you know christian like topics like forgiveness and gratitude and character and i am a christian i love i go to church i i'm very spiritual i have nothing against it is you know but they had a bunch of money and they wanted that character strength stuff done mm-hmm. and so there's huge money interests Really, that's how positive psychology started. And they gave Martin Seligman and others a ton of money to distribute and, and create careers and, and stars out of this and help people. And a lot of people benefited. I personally was very, I, I did not want anyone putting um, a saddle on my horseback. You know, you can ride, if you want to run with me, Pull up to me with your own horse and let's ride. Let's be free. But don't put a saddle on me and tell me what to study and how to study it. Um, and to tell you the truth, none of them had any interest in flourishing. But if you go out and look now, the Templeton is funding an over $40 billion initiative on flourishing right now. Mm-hmm. Right this minute. And they wouldn't fund me because they said I could get funding from the National Institute of Mental Health when I all started. So I was like, oh, okay. But I was so happy. I had the, you know, the MacArthur Foundation support. None of this would really exist without the MacArthur Foundation. That foundation funded scholars and allowed people to organize the best and brightest from around the world. They, they wanted to solve the problem of aging and make aging more positive. But they didn't have any more of an agenda. Positive psychology was filled with business agendas. And they were had a very heavy hand in, in shaping the field and the topics. And after the third year, I said, I'm out of here because you are... No. Scholars determine what to study, how to study it, and who's important. Not foundations raise up and say, hey, I'm going to give a Templeton prize to X, Y, and Z because so-and-so is doing research that I think is cool. Mm. So yeah, to tell you the I, truth, I had, I had problems with the way it, the, it was almost like a startup business to me. Yeah, well, I think it's worth mentioning how uncommon it is that a field, you know, is formed. Fields don't, unless I'm, unless I'm misreading this, they don't, they don't sort of officially arrive in the world. They sort of, are a natural progression from um, you know a history of ideas that that progress over time. So it's yeah. a really unusual situation. I think it's fair to say. What did the other eighteen? Did you know the eighteen before you were there, or did you meet them? I met them, and I I, I met. For instance, I um I remember having this. Jonathan Haidt and I just hit it off. I remember one night we were sitting, um, just the two of us. 
on top of a, a one of the buildings and just looking out at the at the, at the water and and thinking to ourselves i just we were a little worried it's it just we were worried that if we got involved in this were we going to sacrifice some of our integrity and I remember having that interesting conversation and with a lot of people, they just didn't know what was going on and um, where the money was coming from. And it was all very secret. Then all of a sudden it, it was like it arrived. But I, I met all these people for the first time and some of them, like Jonathan Schooler, who's a well-known social psychologist, he went off and went back to do his social psychology. He, um, but people like Barbara Fredericks, and I, who I met there, I didn't know beforehand. She made her career in this field, and 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 Jonathan's gone off to, to do some really interesting and independent stuff on his own. And um, and others just went back to you know like Lisa Aspinwall just went back to University of Utah. She did her thing. I think mm. she stayed out of it, but a few got very centrally involved. Yeah, yeah, and look. And I, I decided to go be... back home. I decided sure. to go back home and stay away from it. So yeah, I think that's going to become a recurring theme in this show: is that most of the people that I talk to don't associate with positive psychology. They might have, you know, they might sort of tangentially be involved. I probably count myself in that, in that yeah. frame. That um, you know, sort of tangentially, it's it's the, it's sort of the it's the only thing that's available to orient ourselves in what we do at this point in terms of language. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, we're not clinical psychologists. We kind of work in this well-being thing. There's no sort of people are now talking about well-being science. Um, but that doesn't really give you like a, it doesn't necessarily give you something to point to. Um, so positive psychology sort of remains that, but then you went on. So these are, these were, if I'm not mistaken, like sort of the late nineties, 98 was, I think the first Mexican, uh, the first meeting in Mexico. Yes. But then in 99, you hosted the first, what did you call it? The first positive psychology con the what, summit. What did summit. you call it? Summit. Summit. So what was that? Yeah. Was that the 18 people meeting again or how did that work? No. Um, at the end of the first meeting in Akamal, um, I remember Marty summons me over. That We're all packing and he's packing. I go to his his, his room and he asks me, um, Sorry, Corey, Corey, would you... this is just breaking up a little bit. Would you just oh. mind repeating that bit, that last bit? Sure, sure. It was at the end of the first meeting of Akamal, and um, um, Marty wanted to talk to me, and I didn't know what. what. And he, he pulls me aside before we all left. He says, um, um, you see, I, I don't remember verbatim, but he essentially asked me to organize it because he didn't know all the players in this field. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and so everyone who's in... The book that I edited were people I contacted and said, um, we're going to have the first summit of positive psychology at the Gallup organization. And Marty wanted the, the very senior people. So I invited my intellectual grandfather, Paul Baltus, to come talk, for instance. I mean, we're talking people at that level. Uh, so uh, and, and so I organized it, invited these people. And then Don Clifton was, you know, this was held at the Gallup organization in Lincoln, Nebraska, um, before they moved and had their headquarters in Washington, D.C., because they had several summits later. 
successively, and many of them were held in Washington, D.C. The first one was held at the original Gallup, which was created in Lincoln, Nebraska. And Don Clifton Sr. was just a remarkable person because he had he was interested in this stuff for a long time. Mm. You could see it in his history. And um, um, he was a delight to work with. Um, and just a charming man. And I would get Christmas cards from him before he passed away. Each, each Christmas, I get the wonderful personal note. I mean, just the kind of class. There's very few people in this area, in this field, that were as classy as, as him. But he believed in this. And so we had that meeting and um, all these senior people. And, and <clears throat> I had a vision and I didn't even ask anyone else. I didn't ask Marty's permission. I contacted APA. I said, I want to edit a book. I think there's something here. Mm -hmm. And so I contacted APA and I said, here's the book. Here's the proposal. Here are the people. Here's their chapters. What's going to be in? And here's the title. I even selected the cover of the book. And the in the 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 um, even the the font, the, uh, the font. Um, because yeah. you know if you look at the the tapestry that's on it, it's from the arts and crafts movement, a particular tapestry that was part of one of the arts and crafts people. To me, the arts and crafts movement was the embodiment of a whole new movement that was meant to bring beauty into ordinary lives really good furniture and beauty into everyone's lives. And that was my vision. And that's why I said this book and the movement really should be called Flourishing. Mm -hmm. um, that, so, yeah, that, that was a, a, a fun time. But I, 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 I remember that night, um, there was a big debate. And I'll end. <laughs> the debate was because I gave my presentation on languishing and flourishing. And there were two two problems they had that night. They had a big debate about because Corey was not going to separate the negative from the positive. Mm -hmm. And yes. I talked about right. I was always going to talk about mental illness along right the two continuum model and how flourishing and languishing was was important because you needed to understand it to deal with the problems of mental illness. And people were like, "No, we don't want to be. We want. We got to talk. Keep 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 the negative away from this." And the second was, they said, Corey, you sound like you're medicalizing this. <laughs> we don't want to do that either. And I said, no, here's the reason I'm going to be doing that. Because psychiatrists are going to be the field that I'm going to be speaking to. And that's the dominant paradigm. Mm -hmm. And if we do things differently from them, they're going to have an obvious way to dismiss all our evidence. And so I mirrored my measure of mental health, and especially the diagnosis, exactly after the way psychiatrists diagnose depression. But they wanted nothing to do with it. We're not going to medicalize this field and we're not going to connect the positive with the negative. And I'm like, oh, okay. I said, fine. That's not going to stop me. Mm-hmm. Great, and, and nor did it. Why, why, so you think that the negative, the, re, the let me start again, the rejection of the integration of mental well-being with mental illness, why do you think they pushed against it? Is it because, I could see almost from a marketing term that you need to present this as something fresh, like something, this is something new now, it's this well-being idea. 
Truth is, Matthew, I, I don't remember if there was any really good, strong case made for it. Okay. I, I, really, I really don't because, you know, the way the, the Gallup organization appro approaches its well-being in the workplace stuff is the, the high degree to which workers talk about feeling, being really disengaged at work. So they come in there to try to engage, meaningfully engage you with your work. Mm -hmm. So I don't think Don Clifton saw it as a big problem, but I think for some reason, I don't know, remember who it was, and maybe it was Marty. I don't, I can't say for sure, but it was like, um, it just seemed dismissed mm -hmm. without much discussion. And I was like, that seems odd. Was anyone presenting daughter at that point? Um. About you connecting would obviously, the yeah, you would obviously go on to, to collect that data, I guess, in a few years' time. But did you have anything yes. to present at that moment? I, I presented the, uh, the early draft of my what would become my 2002 paper, mm -hmm. right? The data that I was starting to look at from the midlife in the United States, MacArthur's data that we were doing yeah okay so you were there with that's like with that's like what about eight thousand participants from a nationally representative sample mm -hmm. yeah so you're there showing them that actually it looks like illness and health are separable things and we need to be focusing yeah. on them both yeah and was there any evidence to the contrary any data to the contrary well no accepted I remember, of course, in Paul Baltus' work on selective optimization with compensation, which is about aging and, and, and aging successfully in the face of decline and disability and age, right? His work, um, I remember addressing some of that. Um, but the rest, I mean, you know, there are people talking about creativity, mm -hmm. um, play, and, and mm -hmm. all of that was done separately. And it almost seemed natural for those things just to be discussed on their own. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so, as you know, that became a big issue in positive psychology. And in, in for the first, well, it wasn't a big issue for, uh, for the first decade. And all of a sudden you started to see it, people starting to complaining about how we're separating these two things. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I guess just to give maybe the listeners a bit of uh, more context. So I guess... The sort of the story goes, it's oversimplified, but the idea is that psychology um, was focused on addressing the negative, sort of fixing what's going wrong with us. Wrong. Positive psychology comes along to say, actually, this is now about, um, let's add a focus on what goes right for us. So if you think mm -hmm. about it like a number line, we were focusing on getting people from negative 10 back to zero. And positive psychology is now saying, actually, zero is not the end goal. We should be actually hoping for a life well lived and let's go now to positive 10. That's where we come in as positive psychology. Mm. Um, but your work, Corey, really identified that it's not a single number line. It's actually two separate, two separate continua. Uh, you call yeah. it the, the two continua, the dual continua. And mm -hmm. I guess I'm, I, this is where I really come in because obviously um, for those who, who aren't aware, and that's probably everyone that's listening, that I've done my PhD on this dual continua model. Um, so completely in a, in a lineage in my mind from, um, from Corey's work. Uh, the first thing I did was a, a systematic review on what data is there to support this thing. Uh, to be honest with you, when I first started the, the, the PhD, it was kind of said to me like, 
there's this idea out there. It's 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 Corey Keyes' idea. Um, he's really the only one working on it. it. Was kind of how it was presented to me. Um, <laughs> and then I true. so I do this review. I do this review, and so this must have been like maybe 20, 2018 when I started, and I found eighty papers from around the world supporting the dual continuum model. Now yeah. there are a couple, one or two that sort of looked like maybe there's a single continuum between well-being and 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 mental illness and that's mostly in the context of depression um which you know is is one context when we talk about the whole world of our mental health and and so he and and this is what i don't understand is that um this is a really timely episode for us Corey, because a, a recent um a recent article came out basically saying that actually the what they call the bipolar model so that single continuum um the evidence supports a bipolar model and not only does it support a bipolar model it's it serves the goals of positive psychology just just well you know just as well as it needs to and yeah. i've actually i i um i think as as you will remember Corey, i drafted and have now published it was accepted yesterday a commentary on that article basically having this conversation that we're having right now which is actually yeah. you know there are many like the weight of evidence is on the dual continuum model supporting this idea that mental well-being and mental illness are separable constructs they're obviously related but they're separable but i took the next step which is to say the bipolar model is actually um it actually prevents the future directions of positive psychology because <laughs> for, for i mean you can speak to this too but for my mm-hmm. mind, if you are, if you are, someone with a diagnosed mental illness, in a bipolar model, that's just become a death sentence. Because say on that number line now, you're at negative seven. All you could possibly hope to do is get, you know, your first step is to get just a negative six, and then to negative five, and hopefully one day you'll get to zero, and then maybe in the future you'll get to ten. But if you've got a chronic mental illness, or if you've got a um, mm-hmm or a, a recurring mental illness, which we know is the case for many, many of these diagnoses that once you've got the diagnosis, you're likely to sort of continue it. Well, that, that, like I say, it's a death sentence. And so presenting it then as a separate continuum, that well-being is distinct from your mental illness, which the mm-hmm. evidence, you know, endorses, well, you've just breathed life into that whole space. Mm-hmm. So any comments on that? Why, why does this keep coming back? I, truthfully, I, I, I think there's a, there's a good in a, there's a good instinct in a, a darker instinct. The good instinct is, I think all of us who are scholars and especially starting out would love to be David who, sli- who slays the Goliath, right? And the evidence, you're right, is, is just overwhelming for the dual continuum. And by the way, I don't think they reviewed any of the neuroscientific research, uh, especially on, on emotions and how our neural structures are designed precisely so that we can, the, uh, the experiencing a positive emotion isn't simply the down regulation of a negative emotion. Exactly. There's all kinds of, we're just built to experience uh, the two continuum when it comes to things even like emotions. But having said that, I think there will occasionally be evidence that suggests in certain contexts, in 
such as what you referred to in clinical patient populations, I find the, the evidence, and I was just reviewing this yesterday myself, the correlations between mental well-being or mental health continuum and psychopathology is much stronger. But again, it doesn't even come close to unity, even in psychiatric population, but it's much higher. So when you're dealing with populations that like that who are in acute distress, it doesn't surprise me that you mm -hmm. will find that. And there's actual people out there like Alex Zoutra who, who talked about context-dependent affect, who shows that when you're dealing with distressed people or populations, that correlations between negative and positive are extremely high and they approach a bipolar model. But under almost... Any other situation for most people, they're 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 orthog they're correlated but distinctive. Absolutely. And so I think there may be a place for a bipolar-like conception, but you're simply not going to convince me. And 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 here's where simple statistics really come in. When you just cross tabulate based on diagnosis. And you find that there's upwards of 40 to 50 percent of a population that doesn't meet the criteria for any common mental disorder. And they're languishing. 40 to 50 percent. You're not going to convince me that, that the bipolar model, that th those people aren't real. Mm -hmm. Right there's people in the in the middle who are free of of a mental illness but aren't flourishing, aren't mentally healthy. They are all over the place, Matthew, and that's why that 2021 article went viral. Absolutely, they, they exist, and they are not going to take this. I mean, don't even. I'm really worried sometimes too. And here's the thing. I wonder if that. I wish they if they had published that article in a non-positive psychology journal, I would have bothered to read it more than once. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm extremely suspicious when we have to create a, a journal to, to to publish our own articles. And here's the thing: this is just a thing for young scholars. If you're trying to create a new field, that you have to create a new journal so that you have a place just to publish your own stuff when you're trying to change the world. My attitude was if you're not going to be able to, I published everything I could in every reputable journal that was not in my field and not positive psychology. Look at the list. None of, I, I, the only one time I published in journal of positive Sorry, psychology. Corey, you're it, just breaking up a little bit there. Oh, you're just breaking up a little bit there, but you, you just, I think just ended off with, um, uh, you're basically for young people starting out, you shouldn't need to start your new journal. And I think you've made a, your career intentionally avoiding just that. And you've instead published in leading as, as high impact uh, journals as you could from every other field. Yeah, if you're starting a new field and a new line of inquiry, <clears throat> don't, if you want to see just how important this work is, Publish it in established high-level journals that aren't necessarily just for your particular topic. 
Like, do everything you can to avoid the Journal of Positive Psychology. Sorry, just crashed out right? a little bit again. You said not just necessarily. So, I, you know, it's, it's just, you know, I'm not saying the article doesn't deserve its, its, its um, time in the sun, but I'm telling you, when one article out of hundreds... And then they probably didn't even review the work that I did with Ken Kendler, the genetic stuff showing that the dual continue exists even at the behavioral genetics level. Probably didn't review that. They probably didn't review the neuroscientific work on negative and positive emotions showing that uh, happiness isn't the obverse of sadness in terms of our neuros, our brain. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just, so... We can have a serious conversation about the dimensionality of this stuff when they can get 10 to 20 more articles published in, in, in reputable journals other than positive psychology. So I just wanted to share a little bit of an endorsement of what you're saying, Corey. Um, we... I was, I was, when I was just starting out to do my PhD, I was getting a meal with a friend who has, you know, um, diagnosis of anxiety. And I guess for him, he hadn't ever considered the fact that his anxiety is not his entire mental health, that actually mm. there is this other aspect to his life. And, and it just takes a moment's reflection really, um, to inspire that, that awareness of actually, you know, I'm, I've got great friends. I'm very social. I, it all works for me. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm in, in engaged work. Um, and I think that that, you know, I was just explaining like, oh, I'm thinking of starting this research on this thing. Mm. And I think he's come away actually de like almost looking for more in his mental health care. So I think he was probably happy at the time or satisfied with, you know, anti-anxiety medication and maybe the talk therapy that he was receiving but I think he's actually come away saying, I'm actually looking for more from my therapist. Mm -hmm. And and I think that he's actually found that because that's absolutely available. You just sort of need to know to look for it. And actually mm -hmm. he is now looking for, um, you know, this idea of becoming a full human, like you sort of mentioned. So I guess, is there anything we haven't covered that you wanted to mention, Corey? Well, it is in, in, in it, this is for the young scholars and, and people who want to, you know, there's so much work to be done in this field. And there's so many firsts that, to be accomplished. I sense right now we're tripping over ourselves, trying to create measures of flourishing like there's five or six new ones and they all mean something different. And it's, you know, I'm fine with that, you know, but it's like everyone wants to create a measure of something that already exists without bothering to actually say how it's different from the ones that exist. And, you know, there is a place for that, but it seems like we're tripping over ourselves, making very little progress because right now I think it's clear that the people who were here first built a case for this. And I was one of them. I spent the, 
the line sign in obscurity, deliberately staying out of the shadow because I wanted to build a scientific evidence to say there is something here. And now that it's here, it's like everyone wants to run to create a measure rather than thinking there's much more progress to be made. There might be reasons to improve upon the measurement, but why are we creating new measures without much contact with existing measures to improve them? Right now, the field of flourishing is just a great example of how you can muddy things up and just enter into a field as if somehow now look at me. But there's so many firsts and so much more work. And the question is, where is your heart? Where, what do you really care about? Because this field isn't just about you and your science or your citations. The question is, this work could make a difference in a lot of people's lives. And I have to tell you, we're, there's... I'm disappointed to tell you the truth that we've been at this this long and we still haven't convinced one country to really build something institutionally like towards the well care system. That would be huge progress if someone can come around and start doing more science rather than creating another measure to build a case for how and why we need to build and deliver more of this to people. I, I just, it just seems like we're satisfied enough to just publish an article, get more money from a foundation. And I don't know. In the end, I must say, as I'm approaching the last third of my life, it's not very satisfying to think that you haven't helped another person. And I'm feeling better and better that, you know, there's people like you, Matthew, and others who are taking this work and running with it. And the fact of the matter is, I helped to create something that other people are using and building careers on. But the question is, how are you going to make a difference with the way you do it? I'm going to be watching. If I'm around for the next 20, 30 years, I'm going to be watching for you young scholars to say, here, we're making a difference with this work. Mm -hmm. Not just publishing. No, I couldn't agree with you more. I wonder, I do wonder, do you think this answer can come from the university at the moment? No, it's why I left it early. Yeah. That's why I left it. Yeah. Truth is, um, but, you know, I, I have to say, the metrics and things that matter to the university do not matter to the ordinary person out here. Absolutely. You couldn't right? be more disconnected. Might, yeah, but it's like, I don't think it's going to make a difference in anyone's life if I get another grant and bring another thousand dollars into my university. It won't. It, if if I got more citations, you know, good for me. But the question is, that's I think 
I want to take this as directly to the people as possible and as directly to people as possible in this mm -hmm. book launch. And I'm very clear with my publisher. I want to use it as a platform mm -hmm. to begin to talk about um, what are sort of the way climate change activists are talking about it. Right. They publish a book and they talk about here are the commitments each government needs to make. And get young people behind this. I'm tired of, of turning on the news. Now in my country, it's like young women. Our, our suicide rates have skyrocketed. Over 50% are persistently sad and hopeless. It's like, come on, people. It's enough. Uh, what are we going to do about it that's different? Because what we're doing now isn't making much of a difference. And so the university wasn't going to be wasn't behind that and and what I cared about. So I could afford to say, you know, okay, um, this has been great, but I think I'm going to use a different platform to, mm -hmm. to reach mm -hmm. people. Amazing. And, and, and where to from here then? A different platform. The book is a platform. It's the start of a yeah. And I'm toying with my agent right now about translating it into a children's book. Cool. Yeah. To try to reach young people and to get parents to talk about stories that connect them with their kids in in warm and trusting ways around stories that enable them to talk about how these things matter in the same way that in that Italian community, right? They already knew that. Mm -hmm. Imagine creating children's books where you recreate that in a connection between a parent and a kid as they're going off the bed and, and you tuck them in and you say, I hope you have sweet dreams. Absolutely. And, and so what do you think? Um, what is the biggest wake up call that we need? Oh, it's happened. The question is, in this hyper progress world, are we going to forget it? It's the pandemic. And with all that, you know, going on around us, what, what we realized was um, we took so much of our lives for granted. And once that it was take all those things that created our well-being became so obvious and taken away from us against our will. See, I think we have an opportunity to really plant the flag say, uh, to remind people. These are the things that really did matter to you. And you were probably not giving them a moment's notice. And, and, and that's the point of my second half of my book. These things are very straightforward things you can do every day. The question is, and Epicurus said this, we need constant reminders of to do the things that we need to do to create happiness for ourselves and each other. Mm -hmm. We know, we know these things, but they can easily be forgotten in, in the hubbub of life. So we need constant reminders, and that's the point. That's incredible, Corey. So thank you. I think that's a perfect place to stop. I think, I hope, you know, so much of my work, I think, has been about, uh, yeah, paying homage and, and making sure that your work which I see as completely foundational is well received and, and, and continues. Where can people find you from here? Do you have 
social media things that they can check for or can we pre-order the book? What's the title of the book, by the way? Uh, the main title, the subtitle is to be determined. The main title will be Languishing. Okay. And um, it, it will be published with Crown Publishing, which is part of Penguin Random House. So, which is a big deal. Yeah. They're, um, and um, it will be released in 2024. The plan is rather early, most likely February. And I will be... Um, I just agreed to keynote the European Positive Psychology meeting in Innsbruck, Austria, to launch the book in positive psychology at that meeting. Great, twenty twenty four. Yeah, and at the yeah. Oh, that's amazing. But I'm not on social media, but I know my publisher will, will want me to be in. Um, We'll probably get a website and other things together. Um, right now, I'm just <clears throat> having just emptied out my office and gone through my books and many of my student letters and notes from students. Um, I've I've been um, reluctant to just jump forward. I'm trying to remember all the, the good things that came from that period of my life and lots of good things came from it. And teaching was one of the, the blessings, the greatest blessings I had. So. Amazing. I really, I really appreciate your time, Corey. I think for anyone interested in further information, I'll, I'll link to a couple of the, the, the studies that um, Corey's spoken about. I think you can find a couple of YouTube videos with Corey's lectures and you can hear the, the joy um, not only in Corey, I was just watching one just to sort of make sure I didn't miss anything. It was from <laughs> almost 10 years ago today where you, I think you said many of, many of the similar things that we've covered, um, which is on, which is on, um, which is on YouTube, but in the joy, not just in, in yourself, but in your students as well. Um, so I really appreciate your time. Let's look out for this book and, um, and thank you, Corey. Oh, thank you, Matthew. And best of luck with your podcast. I appreciate it. Well, I guess this is this is part of my attempt of of doing this outside the research world, right? And and I think a lot of our efforts with with my color, with my colleagues, this is about uh, making a difference in the world. So I really appreciate your time. You will take care. Man, what an episode! Honestly, I promised you. I told you I was going to get the stories behind the studies. What a way to kick off the show! Um, this is the, the, the behind the scene worlds, I think of what goes on in the research world is just so interesting and it's just not out there. So a, a huge shout out to, to Corey, to being, uh, for being the guest um, for our inaugural episode. I really appreciate his time. If you know someone, uh, that you think would be interested in this episode and the stories behind this study or this body of work. Um, share this, share this video. We're going to have clips. You can find us on YouTube. We'll be on locals, um, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter. Um, we're going to try and make this as, you know, widely available as possible. Um, subscribe wherever you find this thing, Spotify as well, I should say. 
subscribe and please share because I think PodPsych has such a huge reach into the world. It's got an amazing story. Um, and obviously there are two sides to every story. So let's keep going. When I finish this episode, it's early in the morning because, you know, I'm in Australia. I'm trying to make this work for my international guests. So I get up early. Um, when the episode was over, it was, um, you know, my fam my family was just waking up basically. So I uh, was telling him how it all went. I was telling Ari about, um, you know, remember the, the, the turtle story? Let's, let's go into it. So I actually recorded him recounting that. So I'm going to play that now as a little bonus to the episode. So enjoy. Thanks again for watching. Please share, like, subscribe, whatever. Let's go. Do you remember, Ari, the story about the tortoise and the hare? Yeah. What happens again? You have to, you have to clean the bed. <laughs> yeah, okay. But what about the story about the tortoise and the hare? Um, they race and then the tortoise, the tortoise did it with the, he had a big, heavy walk, walk. So he did walk one, but he oh. had a big, heavy walk. Oh, his shell was heavy? Yeah. And so he didn't run? Yeah. And what did the hare do? He, he runs. The hare ran? Yeah. And who was faster? The tortoise. The tortoise? Yeah. Oh my goodness. Good job, tortoise. Slow and steady wins the race. He was, and he was already at the beginning. He was already at the beginning? Yeah. Oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to be like the tortoise or do you want to be like the hare? I don't want to be like anything. Oh. <laughs> Time for breaking? Time for breaking, Mama. 